there and welcome to the Game Pit. This is episode 22 and it's one of our Picking Over the Bones episodes. I'm Sean and here's Ronan. Hey there, yes, welcome. And in our Picking Over the Bones episodes, we go over a few games we've been playing recently and give you some of our thoughts on them. The two games I'm going to be discussing this week are Russian Railroads and Pathfinder, the adventure card game. And Sean, what would you like to talk about? Well, I'm going to be talking about Jaipur and a game that's yet to be fully released, The Agent. You can catch all our episodes at 2d6.org where you'll find other video, audio and written gaming goodness. And we are members of the Dice Tower Network. Head to dicetowernetwork.com and you will find a bunch of fantastic board gaming podcasts. So, first up this week is Jaipur, published in 2009 by Asmodee and Gameworks. It's designed by Sebastian Porchon, and Sebastian did Jamaica, Metropolis, Ispahan, and Quarto, which was released in Essen last year. It plays two players in a time frame suggested of about 30 minutes, but... I think you should really get it down to about 15, 20 once you know the game. This is a quick card game with hand management, set collection and a little spot of trading where players represent two of the most powerful traders in Jaipur, which is the capital of Rajasthan. Each player is seeking to be the one who is invited to the Maharaja's court. And to do this, they must win two of the seals of excellence, which are obtained by out trading the other player. So how do you play Jaipur? Well, it's completely made up of a deck of cards and a stack of tokens. The cards represent the goods you trade and comprise of leather, spice, cloth, silver, gold, diamonds, and there's also camels, but they work slightly differently to the other cards. The tokens they represent the rewards that you're going to get for trading the aforementioned goods with bonus tokens available and a special bonus camel token. And there's of course the three coveted seals of excellence. The goods they range in value for example, the leather and spice tokens are worth the lowest and diamonds and gold are worth the most. So you set the game up by forming a marketplace of five cards and dealing each player five cards. The goods tokens are separated into their types and placed in piles of, in descending order of point value. Finally, the other cards are placed by the market and they form a draw pile. So on their turn, players can either take cards or sell cards. That's it. So... We're going to talk about the taking cards. Bearing in mind that players can never have more than seven cards in hand at the end of their turn, the options for taking cards are you can take as many cards from the market as you want and replace them with an equal number of cards from your hand. The cards taken can be different types, as can the returned cards, including the camels. You can take one single good and replace it with the top card from the draw pile, or you can take all the camels from the market and replace them with cards from the draw pile. That's the take cards action. Then you've got the selling goods, and this is done as follows. You can sell as many cards of one good type as you like by placing them into the discard pile. Then you will take many of the corresponding goods tokens as the cards you discarded making sure that you take from the top of the pile ensuring that you get the highest values first and then should you sell three four or five cards 
you will earn a three, four, or five bonus token, which will give you hidden bonus points. Each bonus token has a different reward range, with the lower values found in the three and higher values found in the five tokens. A special restriction occurs when selling the three higher value goods, silver, gold, and diamonds, and that is that players must sell at least two good cards for each of these. Only one goods type may be sold per turn. I did say that the camels work differently, and as well as being able to pick up all of the camel card from the markets as i said earlier without replacing them from your hand they can also be placed on the table to form that player's herd these now do not count towards the player's hand limit and also can't be used to swap for goods any further at the end of each round the player with the largest herd will receive the five point camel bonus token so on to the end of the round the round ends when there are no cards left to restock the market or three types of good token are gone both players will add up their points, and the player with the most points earns a seal of excellence, with the first to claim two seals, the winner of the game. Ronan, Jaipur. Well, what Jaipur does is it takes resource conversion and strips it down to its real bare, bare bones. The resources you've got are those cards, and you're converting them directly into points, and obviously the points you get, that's really the main decision that you're going to make. I guess some decision in which cards to draft in the middle, but then... How are you going to take them? Are you going to go early and get the high value tokens on the top of those piles? Are you going to try and store them up and get the bonus tokens? Both are important to do. How to balance it out. So that's what the game does. It strips everything away and keeps it really, really simple. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to bear in mind that, for instance, there's a lot more cards available for something like cloth than there is for something like diamonds. So do you do you hang back and wait to collect those really valuable diamond points? Or do you just say, you know what, I've got two or three cloths in my hand i'll just go i'll just grab whatever cloth i can get them out of my hand and recycle that way it's quite a little tactical game given that it really is just two choices you're going to take cards or sell cards yeah you very much have to be reactive to what the other player is doing so if you see for example if i see sean is stocking up on a load of leather do i make the choice to try and deny him by drafting leather in or do i just let that go and i know he's going to go for a big bonus tile and they can you know the, especially the five point bonus tiles or the five card bonus tiles can be a lot of points up to 10 or do i say no i'm going to stick to my own strategy and because you've got that hand limit of only seven it's very difficult to have any cards that are no use to you You know having two leather cards to prevent your opponent from getting points is really useless to you because you're not going to get a bonus tile for them they're going to be worth two maybe three points to you when you hand them in you don't have the space to be able to do these sorts of things so a lot of the interaction is very reactive to each other but it's not direct which i think is what is part of the appeal to a lot of people in it in that a lot of two-player games can be really in your face if i do something it directly takes away from you it can cause a bit of friction maybe if people think that they're pulling off some moves that aren't the nicest so that's a really nice thing about it as well you are interacting with each other all the time there's a little kind of almost a buffer between you in this in the simple mechanisms in that i'm not directly stealing from you yeah it's not a nasty game and just to sort of add on to what you were saying you really do have to watch those cards as well because 
you, you need to know what cards have gone. So you need to keep an eye on what's been picked up and what's been played into the discard pile and what tokens are quite low. So if all the cloth tokens are gone, you know, there's probably no point in you even bothering collecting the cloth. Let's just go for something else. And also, what has your opponent been stacking up? If they haven't actually claimed the diamonds or the gold, but you've seen them picking up a couple, you know they're possibly going for a big old haul of diamonds towards the end of the game. So maybe stopping them getting that last diamond that they need for the for the five diamond chip or something like that would be the way forward so you're always thinking you're always planning ahead you're always reacting as ronan quite rightly said to what the other person's doing and i think the other bit with regards to that interaction between two players is the camels sean What's your thoughts on that camel mechanism, which is quite clever, isn't it? It it definitely is. It's just it's a really handy way if you just don't have the cards in your hand to plan for the future. It's it's almost like a rainy day fund, isn't it? You just grabbed all those camels, and if something nice comes out or a nice collection of cards come out, you've got those camels in your hand, and you can just sweep in, take all those cards that you really want, and replace them with camels. And then on top of that, you've got another decision to make: Do I really want that five point? camel token now this is quite a short game and it often will completely depend on a sort of 10 point swing and that's what that five point camel token will do for you is a 10 point swing in the game and it can make a lot of difference yeah the other other issue you have if there's a lot of camels in the lineup and you take them out if i take out three or four camels i'm obviously putting three or four new cards in there for my opponent to immediately get to draft from so if we're if I think we've both got one diamond in our hand and the second diamond is going to allow them to capture the tiles that are left, if I do take all those camels, then, like I say, they're going to get a better draft. So sometimes, uh, yeah, you could put camels back in the middle in order to sort of try and tempt them to take the camels so that you're giving up that five point, but maybe you're getting a better draft and then you're able to take some other ones. You know, it's it's a nice to and fro. It's not quite as simple as it seems to be that you just take each camel as it comes out and whoever's taken the most wins. Because it creates that to and fro between in your camel herd and a player's hand and what's available to them, you have to very much time. You know, if you've got seven cards in your hand, Sean, then maybe then I'd take four camels because I know you have to trade in next time. So whatever comes out, I'm going to get first dibs on them. And that's a little bit of, of balance there as well. I like it. It's quite clever. I think another thing we really need to talk about, and I'm amazed you haven't brought it up yet, is how visually appealing the game is. Yeah, it's just a really colourful, bright, happy game, isn't it? It's just everything's really nice and bright and the cards are of good quality. And it's just a little tiny box that they come in and the chips, a nice little plastic chip. It's not little cardboard tokens. So, yeah, it's, it's a very pretty game, definitely. I will say that, I mean, I've played this uh, more than a couple of dozen times now. And the one sort of limitation on the game, I'll say, is that now there's, there's nothing new. There's nothing coming out at any point that I haven't seen before. There's nothing sort of, you know, unusual going on. It's not really a fall down, though, because this is just a light game. But w- what it's done is replacing sort of that discovery of the new or a range of choices with the fact that now myself and my regular partners, I play it with, I play it with my eldest daughter, I play it with some friends, I play it with Sean, is that we play so quickly that while there might not be a range of choices per turn, there's so many turns on top of each other, on top of each other, on top of each other, that I'm still constantly making choices. And that's kind of where the appeal's gone. It's gone away from, oh, which way should I go and learn in the game, into it's quick, there's genuine decisions to be made, there's not anything new coming up all the time, but still, also, when both players have an appreciation of the game, the little plays become, you know, you, you notice how important it is, 
each card that gets taken and you can kind of anticipate where the other player is going. I like it that it's a game you can learn by playing quickly, get to learn the nuances of it and then enjoy it on a different level. As I said in my spiel about the game, you really should be knocking this down to sort of 15, 20 minutes tops once you know the game. And I'm hard pushed to think of a, well, maybe you can throw Love Letter in there, but other than Love Letter, there's there's not many games out there that will give you this much fun, this much thought in a 15-minute time frame. I think 15 minutes is pushing it a little bit. <laughs> oh, we, we we played it in 15 minutes the last time we played it. Isn't that only because I won in two rounds? Yeah, okay, 15 <laughs> to 20 minutes. I just take the little digs at you when I can. So, in my summary of Jaipur, it's not the deepest two-player game around, but it does avoid the direct conflict issue with two-player games. It is really fun to play. It's quick, it's light, but as a quick, light two-player game, it really is one of the best. I'd be hard-pushed to think of anything as good as this in that category. It's a little gem of a game. A gem, get it? Jaipur. Sean? I can really only echo what you said. You, you've, you've stolen everything I wanted to say about the game. To reiterate, there are two main choices in this game. And for just having those two main choices, there's so many little sub-choices you've got to make in your head. And that's the beauty of this game. So, yeah, as Ronan said, very hard push to find a better game that plays in this time frame. That's Jaipur. <laughs> Second game for this episode is a 2013 release from Z-Man Games in English, and that is Russian Railroads. There's been a lot of chat about it. I think it's made quite a big impact recently, and we thought we'd have our tuppence about it. Now it's for uh, two to four players. The suggested playing time is 120 minutes, and that very much depends upon player count because I've played a two-player game in under 45 minutes, I've played a four-player game in coming on for three hours. Hugely variable, depends upon how many players are playing and how you play. It's designed by Helmut Oli and Lonnie Orgel. Now, Helmut and Lonnie have both worked on a few 18xx games. Those are the shares and track laying and stock building games which are related to the expansion of railways all across the world. They all share a, a common mechanical system if you like with slight variations and there's lots of them out there so that's sort of where their basing board game design is they've also expanded a little bit and used a very similar sort of mechanic framework when they designed poseidon which is almost like a, a, a slightly simplified 18xx game based around ancient greece so that's their background when they bring out a game called russian railroads everyone thought it was going to be something similar but this is definitely different so what it actually is, is a worker placement game. And it is probably as pure a worker placement game, really, as you'll find. Because there's barely even any resources in this, which you usually get with worker placement games. There's a tiny amount of money, uh, which basically works as, as an extra worker. It's all about placing your workers onto a central board in order to move along four different tracks on each player's own personal board. And moving along those tracks will create opportunities to score points and to trigger different issues within the game. And obviously, we're going to go over through all of that. And each of those four tracks has different conditions, which are you need for movement and what have you. And we're, I'm about to go over it all. 
So the first thing you get is that central board. Now it is two-sided. One side is three to four players. The other side is specifically two-player with some of the spaces boarded over. So it's a nice touch that it reminds you how to play two-player on there. On that board, it's quite simply some spaces for workers which show you with a graphical representation what those spaces trigger when you place your workers there. There are spaces for what engineers, which are part of the gaming mechanism, and they also act as a game timer, and we'll discuss engineers in a while. And also there's a score track around the outside of it. Now the score goes up to 100 on the score track, but people will be scoring way in the hundreds in this game. I don't think I've ever hit 400, but I certainly know people who have scored more than 400 points, so clearly I'm not that great at it. But that's how many points you're looking to score in the game. And in terms of scoring as well, I'm talking about scoring in the hundreds there. The game is played over six or seven rounds, and by the end, you will have scored at least 200 points. But in your first round, you might be scoring 5, 10, maybe 20 points. And that's very much something to understand as you play the game, is that your scoring will accelerate throughout the game. And everything you do at the beginning is going to snowball and have an effect later on, enable to score you more and more points as you go through it, kind of gathering speed like a locomotive taking off. So each player gets their own board. On that board, there are these four tracks that we talked about. Now, three of them are possible railway tracks you can build, and they all go from Moscow, one to Vladivostok, one to St. Petersburg, one to Kiev. And the fourth track is called the Industry Track, and that runs down the bottom, slightly different to the others, and we will go through all of them separately. Each player also gets a set of black rails. Now, there are different coloured rails available in the game, and again, as I explain, we'll explain them all. But you start with your black rails, and basically moving them along the tracks is going to trigger all the other effects and open up your options but your options are limited when you start the game you also get one ruble uh, an industry marker to move along the bottom track and your score markers just to keep track of your score other bits and bobs in the game there's a stock of just the normal stuff but there's also two things that probably need mentioning now which can help as we explain the game later one is there's a stock of different colored rails so for each player there are three black rails to start with there are also three gray there are three brown there are two natural coloured and there's one white rail and these rails act as markers and they're going to move along the tracks if you choose to do so and score your points and trigger effects as they move along. So just be aware there's different colour rails that can be able to come into the game and there's also a stock of locomotives which double as factories and locomotives are going to be used to power your rails and factories are going to be used to develop your industry track and I'll go through all this again but don't usually like to go through the components list, but I think they're going through it now. Hopefully that will make it a bit easier to explain as we go along. Let's talk about that main board. Where exactly you can place your workers during the six or seven rounds of the game. The left hand side of the board, there are two spaces available to move your black tracks. Now one worker can be put to move your black tracks too. And that's your three black rails that you have on your three tracks. You can move any of them twice or two of them once, however you want to do it. There's also one for two workers to move three moves with your black rails. Now that is mirrored down with exactly the same for grey rails once you get them into the game. Then there's two spaces for brown rails to move, two for natural rails to move, two for white rails to move. And there's also a couple of spaces down the bottom which allow you to, one of them allows you with a piece of money to move any of your rails. And then there's the general area where everyone can go in. It's the only space that's not blocked by being occupied so as many workers go as possible. And that lets you move one of your black or grey rails. So I'm talking about moving rails, I'd better explain that. You have got these three tracks. The top one goes from space 1 to 15. 
and your black rail starts at space one. As I choose any action that lets me move my black rails, I can shift that black rail one space along to the right. And as I do so, on each of the tracks, it's going to trigger different things. So let's start with that very top track, because that kind of drives a lot of the other mechanisms in the game. That one's the Moscow to Vladivostok. When I move across to space two, there's a graphical representation there that shows me when my black rail gets there, I get my three grey rails available to me. And my grey rails will then become available, they'll be off the board, and then if I choose to move my grey rails, they can start moving to the right along the different tracks. When you're moving rails, however, the lowest value one must always be at the front. So the black rail will always be the furthest advanced rail on my track. It will then be followed by my grey rail. And then as I trigger my brown rails, they'll come next behind the grey one and natural and white and so on. If I get my black rail marker up to point six on this Moscow to Vladivostok track, that's when I trigger my brown rails and they become available. And in a similar pattern, when I get it to space 10, my two natural rails become available for, for the top two tracks. And if I ever get it to space 15, that's the end space of a track. And now I score 10 points for finishing any of my three railway lines. So I get that. Also, I get my white rail available, available and it moves twice. The other things I can do on this track are if I get my brown track to space three, so that's a couple of moves along, I have to develop my rails first, get my black and gray moved. And also it's powered by a locomotive to space three, which I'll discuss in one second. I get an extra worker. Everyone starts with five workers in a four player game or six in a two or three player game. And there's always two available that you can earn. So that's a way of having another worker. And as I guess most people will know the more workers you have in a worker placement game, the better off you have. So moving these tracks will also give you more workers. There's also a space much further on, which is space 13, which will give you a bonus marker if I get my black rail to that space and I've powered it up to space 13. Now, bonus markers I will definitely come back to. There are four of them available to you for advancing on your tracks. There's one of them. I'll explain them at the end of all the track explanation because they, they, they give extras and they add on to all the other rules in the game. So there's just an example of what you do with the top rail. The other thing to note is that, so how far you've got each of those color rails is gonna score you a certain amount of points each round. That's another thing I'll come back to, but that's why you wanna move the black rail along and unleash your gray rails and brown rails, etc., etc. because the higher along that track the rail is, the more points it's gonna score you as you move it along your track. So that's the top track. I'm gonna skip one now and go down to the bottom one, Moscow Kiev rail. And that is very similar only that it's going to score you some more points. We'll talk about that slightly in a different way. But things to note, if you get your black rail to mark seven on there, that's the second place you can get your extra worker available. So that's maybe an option you can go for early. Move your black rail along there quickly and get your extra worker. If you get to space nine, which is the end of the track, you score 10 points. There's also some extra scoring in there I'll talk about in a minute. The middle track is one that's really focused on getting you a couple of those bonus tiles out I mentioned earlier. If you can get your black rail four spaces long and powered, you get a bonus rail six spaces long and powered you get another bonus uh, counter and we'll talk about those in a second again if you get to the end you score 10 points now the bottom track of all of these is different it's not a railway track it's called your industry track and you have a special industry marker and you can take actions to move that and i'll explain that now because on the board there are three spaces to place workers which will let you move along the industry track this is down the bottom and the first five spaces are available to you and the interesting thing is now that you cannot move from the fifth space across to the seventh space because there is no space six. And you're gonna to have to build those spaces yourself by putting factories into the middle gaps to be able to move your industrial marker along. Now, why would you wanna do that and how do you do it? Well, 
I mentioned that stock of locomotives in the game, and I'm going to come back to them again. Locomotives go from power level 1 to level 9. And there is one locomotive of each level for each player in the game. Everyone starts with one level 1 locomotive. And what that means is that what their top track is powered to space 1. If you take any of the three options on the board with your workers to allow you to get a locomotive, you can take it as a locomotive or a factory. As a locomotive, it's going to power the track that you give it to, which may trigger things on that track which require it to be powered to get to. It's also going to allow you to score on that track, or it can be a factory to fill in the space on this bottom industry track. So if you choose it as a locomotive, you choose where it goes, you're able to shuffle your locomotives around, and then the total power next to each track will tell you how far you can score and like I say may trigger some spaces. If you choose to have it as a factory you flip it and each of those locomotives, each level has got a different type of factory on the back of it and what happens there is in the case I'm discussing it will move into the sixth space on your industry track and when you move your marker to it it will one-off trigger whatever that factory does you know they have all different kinds of effects they can give you an extra move on the industry track or they can let you score points or they can give you money there's different things but just to let you know you have to fill in your industry track by choosing and you give up the chance to have a locomotive and you have a factory instead so it's one of those things you have to choose you're looking to power your tracks and score points up there or you're looking to develop your industry track to give you bonuses also, further along in the 11th space on the industry track, there's that last bonus marker space. Now, I've mentioned them a lot because they are quite vital to your strategy because the bonuses will give you extra stuff, obviously, being called bonuses. And it's one way of playing the game. The middle bit off the board where you place your workers is simply a turn order thing. But it's quite interesting in that it goes from, obviously, however many players you have. But if you're first, you cannot then reserve first for next turn. But you can reserve second, and anyone else can reserve first. If you're second, you can't reserve second for next turn, but you can try and attempt to reserve first. Uh, and it's an interesting little thing that someone can't get stuck in first place, because that can be a decent advantage. There's a little bit of point scoring makeup if you're not in first point place. You get a couple of points each round. Not a huge difference, I don't think. There's only two other areas on that board that you can place things. Now, one of the areas is a little bonus place. You can place one worker to get two workers back for that turn, two bonus workers. Or you can place one worker and get two coins. Now, a coin can always act as a worker for you, but there's a couple of spaces you need a coin to go into. One is the one I mentioned earlier, which lets you place a worker and a coin. You can move any two of your rails. So if you're looking to move a particular colour, and those two spaces which allows you to move that colour of rails have been blocked, you can go there and do it. And the other place you can spend a coin to hire an engineer, which I'm going to get to in one set, because the last bonus you can do is called a doubler. Now, these doublers go across that top track, the Moscow to Vladivostok track, and they double the points for each space you've got a doubler in. When I talk about point scoring, that will make more sense. Now, I did just mention this is the last thing on the board, the engineer space. So the engineers act as the round markers. So they tell you, firstly, how much time is left. The second thing is there's two engineers available in most rounds, which are extra spaces to be used by anyone as part of their normal placing. Now, the engineers all have different actions and different bonuses, and they usually let you do something and then score points. So it might let you move two or three grey rails and score four points. Now, that's fine in that there's these slightly different spaces each round for everyone to go into. But probably more importantly, there's always one engineer for hire each round. And if you choose to go there, you place a coin instead of a worker and you take that engineer into your own personal tableau. And that engineer is now only available to you to use for the rest of the game. So 
you have a space that is going to be useful and it's reserved to you because getting the spaces is quite cutthroat. So you're going to go through the six or seven rounds. You're going to be placing your workers on the board. You're going to be moving your tracks. You're going to be developing your industry track if you choose to. You're going to be looking to get locomotives out to power your rails. Why are you doing it? Well, you're doing it just to score points. You score points at the end of each of the rounds in two different ways only. And there's a couple of bits of bonus scoring at the end. So how do you score points? Well, I'll go for the easy one first. Where your marker is on the industry track, you're going to score a number of points for it every round. So to get to the first five spaces, if you got to the fifth space and stayed there, at the end of the round, you're going to score five points. If you manage to build that factory and move on to sixth space and trigger it and move past it to seventh space, well, that's got a 10 points marker on it. So if you manage to put a factory in there, move across to the next space, you'll score 10 points each round and so on up to 15, 20, 25 and possibly 30 points every round. If you get to the end of that industry track, you'll also would have triggered five different factories in that time and you would have got an extra bonus token. So it's definitely something you can go down a route you can consider. The other scoring is for the rails you've managed to move along your railway tracks and power with locomotives. And this gets a little bit more complicated. So for each of those three tracks, First thing you do is you look and see which locomotives are to the side. Now, for the Moscow to Vladivostok, there's space for two locomotives, but for the other two, there's only space for one locomotive. Whatever the value added together is of either the two or just the one locomotives, that's how many spaces are viable to be scored for you on that track. Now, black rails, as you advance them along, are not going to score you any points. Apart from on the bottom track, if they're powered, they will score some points, but I won't go into the details of that. I think this all explanation is going to be long enough anyway. Grey rails. Every space you have, so if your grey rail has made it out, let's say, to space 5, and you've powered it with a locomotive, which is at least 5 power, it's going to score 1 point for every track back to the beginning. So if I got it at space 5, I had a 5 power locomotive, I'd score 5 points. However, the next value up of, of rail is the brown rail. So let's say in exactly that situation, I had got my grey rail to 5, but my brown rail to 3, and they're powered. My grey rail will score one point for space five, one point for space four. Then I don't score any more for grey because brown takes over. And I score two points for the brown in three and two and one. So that will be two, four, six, seven, eight points altogether for having got my grey to five and my brown to three. And then my natural rails, if I manage to get them out, they score four points per space I've moved them along. And then the big one is the white rail. If I get to get start that moving along that top track, it's the only place you can have it. It scores seven points per place. Now, I mentioned doublers earlier and that you can get doublers from the board. There's also various other ways you can get doublers. If I've got a doubler in a space, it doubles the amount of points that space is scoring each round. So if I have a grey with a doubler, instead of scoring one point, it's going to score two points. If I get that white out with the doubler, that's 14 points per space. I'm able to move that white track along, which if you can get it out, it's a long process. You've got to get that black rail all the way around to 15 and you're having to power these spaces. But if you can get it out at the end, that is a huge point score and definitely something that people like to try and do. So that's what you score at the end of each round. You score your industry track. You score your tracks that are powered on your three railway tracks. And those scores are going to go up and up throughout the game. At the end of the game, there are two extra bits of scoring. One of them is for the majority of engineers. So whoever has hired the most engineers, and there's a little value on them to kind of break any ties, whoever's hired the most engineers is going to score 40 extra points, which sounds a lot. It is a lot. It's quite handy. And whoever's got the second most engineers is going to score 20 points. Not in a two-player game, but don't worry about that. The other scoring 
The only other scoring you can have is bonus cards. Now, there are only two ways to get endgame scoring cards. One of them is if you trigger a level 9 factory. The locomotives come out in order. So the first ones to be bought and the first factories to be bought will be the level 2 ones. When they're all gone, you buy the level 3 ones, then the level 4 ones, and so on and so forth. If you manage to hang back enough on your industry track and get a level 9 factory out and then move on to it and trigger it, you get to take an endgame scoring card. I've seen it done, it can happen, but maybe not so often as other tactics have I seen it done. The other way is via one of those bonus tokens I've been going on about all game. Now, these bonus tokens are kind of, again, one of the key strategies. So I'll just go over them quickly, but one of them to let you know is it lets you choose an endgame scoring card. So whichever way you get the endgame scoring card, they just score for various things. They might score you points for every line you finished. They might score you points for your most valuable uh, locomotives, or they might score you points for having engineers. There's just anything you do in the game, there's probably an endgame scoring card for it. Other bonuses give you stuff like bonus doublers, bonus moves on the tracks, bonus moves on your industry track, a second industry marker, which can be used to trigger your factories again or score extra points for you, uh, and a bonus to your scoring for all your rails to make them all more valuable or a special scoring medal which if you get a grey uh, rail up to this medal you can place on one of your tracks you score points for it so those bonuses can add and, and be one of the ways to vary the strategy they might seem kind of minor but they really do add a bit of variety different ways to go about doing the same thing as each other so that is quite a long rules explanation on Russian railroads but I think it's a game that people find challenging to start with and appears to be perhaps a little bit trickier to teach than it is to play because trust me once you get into the flow of it it all makes sense all the it's all comes together nicely and it's really not as hard to play it's not as intimidating as it first appears sean i've been talking for a long time please take over would you like a glass of water i think i need something stronger hold on a minute now i can't remember a time when i wasn't listening to you explain russian railroads you're not helping. <laughs> All right. Presentation. Everyone wake up. Everyone it. wake up. <laughs> he stopped talking. Don't worry. Presentation. I remember when we were trawling around the halls of Essen and there was always a big crowd around this little table and we kept sticking our noses through the crowd just to see what was going on and there was a very pretty game there. And when we found out it was a railroad game, we were like, ugh, meh. But there was more and more and more and more and more buzz going on in Essen and eventually we had a closer look at it and it did look really, really pretty. Everything was really well done. Even the meeples have little ushankas on them and the game really does feel like a railway game but also has that Russian feel it's, it's very polished yeah it, is this theme the only theme that would work with the game probably not but in the strong design in the fact they've made it look nice in the fact that the graphical design is really really good I mean you do have to understand it but once you understand it it all makes sense I think it actually makes it feel much more thematic than the mechanics would suggest and I do think it looks nice. I do think there's visual appeal to it. I do like the fact that it's not sort of... It doesn't look the same as other games. It has got that kind of... It might be, I don't know, I'm not Russian. It might have kind of be sort of a COD Russian style that, that is not really Russian, but what we think of as Russian, you know. But I, I do like it. I really think it does look nice. It's certainly more 
visually appealing than you would think a worker placement game about railways would be. And, and you know, I really don't like railway themes in games. Maybe it's the fact that I work on the railways or whatever it is. I just don't like the theme of railways in games. And often they look awful. A, a railroad game that looks nice. Cool. My first ever game of this, I was just kind of in awe because... It just feels like there's so many routes to victory. It's like, what do you do? And I did my usual thing when I just became a jack of all trades, tried a little bit of everything and lost horribly. But I think after playing it a couple of times now, I think that this game does have different routes to victory. But I think it rewards the kind of narrowing of the focus towards maybe the middle of the game. You've really got to narrow and go for what you know you've got to go for. If you just carry on down that path of trying a bit of everything and trying to get this and trying to get that, I think you, you will lose heavily. So I think diversity is not your friend in this game. It's, I think it's very dependent upon how each game goes. I've seen games won with several different strategies it can be, in the first game we ever played, right, the guy who won smashed that industry track because we were all ignoring it. The other three of us were all new to the game and we ignored it completely. Now, I don't think in particularly industry track might be the strongest strategy in general, although it will give you good early points, good early bonuses and give you a kickstart. It's not something to ignore either, but because we weren't doing it and he was getting industry moves cheaply and he, I think he got an industry track move an engineer or two, for him, it worked. So I've heard a lot of chat about this strategy is broken, that strategy is broken. Always go for the Moscow Vladivostok uh, track because that always will score you most points. Or always go for this. There is no always. Okay, that you have to react to what the other players are doing, and that is the appeal to me. So I wasn't sure after the first two or three plays, I was like, oh, I don't know, is, is there just one way? Is it? Is, am I missing something here? But the more I've played it, the more I'm seeing it's playing the other players. And that is the appeal of a worker placement game, is that the spaces should be limited. It should be a fight to do what you want to do. And sometimes it's not so much which is the best strategy, it's what is the strategy they're not doing and how can I do it effectively? I still have to play well. It's such a tight worker placement game. It's, you know, it, there's so few spaces on that board and it's very easy to get blocked out. And if you start going down, I, I've got to do this. This is the only one thing I can possibly do. Unless you're very lucky or very clever and, and get the engineers that will fit into doing that. And you're not going to get many engineers in the game anyway. It, if someone else is doing it, someone else is blocking you, you just can't do it. So I think I'm almost kind of going to do it myself. It, probably the next part I'm going to make. But you do have to be a little bit flexible and you have to react to what other players are doing. See, now you've played it a lot more than I have. I've just played it a few times. Um, I'm yet to be convinced about that because my initial impression really was that there are going to be some strategies that come out of this and they're going to turn out to be the must-do strategies. But I will bow to your greater knowledge on this on this occasion and we will say that uh, those must-do strategies really haven't presented themselves yet, so maybe they never will. Which did you think were coming out as must-do strategies? Is it getting the white tracks out? 
Yeah, otherwise, well, the game, the first game we played when I was just doing everything and nothing at the same time, you went heavily for industry. You looked like you had the game sewn up, but another player actually pushed their track all the way around all got the white track all the way down got massive massive bonus points from doubling up and stole the game right at the end and that looked to me at that time like that was a pretty good strategy and something that i'd probably employ the next time i played it yeah see i think this kind of addresses two points as well that uh, firstly this chat going on that you can't win from behind in russian railroads and because of that incremental scoring if someone gets ahead of you, you're never going to catch them, is utter, utter rubbish. That I'm sorry, guys. And I know that actually <laughs> our beloved Dice Tower Network leader has said this. Tom, you're wrong, okay? And 50% of the games I've played, and I've played a good few games of it, it has been a catch-from-behind win by employing a different strategy. If you're all trying to do the same thing, if you all buy into this Moscow Vladivostok is the only way to go, and you're all trying to do it, and someone's got the edge, yeah, you're not going to catch them. There are other ways to go. Very clever use of the bonus tiles will break down anyone. If you play those well, you will catch someone who's not playing them well, for sure. And like I said, in that game we played, he got his white tracks suddenly, although I'm going back, it is the strategy we're talking about. He got his white tracks out so far because we weren't doing it. I wasn't in position to do it because I'd gone on the industry track and, and yourself and the other player weren't doing it. So it, it was an opportunity that presented itself. Yeah, quite quite possibly. As I said, you, you know the game a lot, lot more than I do. But what I will say, and this is a more negative point for me, we've talked about what we like about the game and things that really interest us about it. I don't feel there's a lot of interaction in this game, Ronan. We do bang on about interaction oh. in games. I really don't... The blocking is minimised because there's so many options and you can get options just to do your own thing. If you get the right engineers, you don't really have to talk to other people. You just sit and do your own thing. Mm, I might 50% accept your point. (laughs) This is a tight, tight worker placement game, mate. There is not a lot of space to do anything. I tell you, the, the mistake I keep on making, for example, is I keep forgetting to get locomotives at the right time. I mean, and the timing of taking locomotives, maybe I'll talk about it in a sec. But for just for, for example, there's there's only there's a space for one worker, there's a space for two workers, or there's a space for three workers each round to get a locomotive. And I I can't afford to spend three workers to get a locomotive out. You can do that and get a locomotive on factory track, but then you have to use your industry track in order to be using the extra factory you're getting with your third worker and it's all you know it's really tight the interaction is all there i think that maybe one of the things that whether people miss it or not when you're going for turn order the meeple that you use to take turn order you get to reuse it again now if you've got engineers that's great because you'll know you're always going to have a space to put that back into and it's a really effective strategy and sometimes new players don't seem that worried about it and they they're like oh well you know it's not that important who takes the first move it is very important who takes the first move it's very important what your early moves are as well just because you're not scoring a lot of points early on doesn't mean that those moves aren't important because they will set the foundation for the things to come and if you're just chucking meeples around, kind of, oh, let's see what happens, what have you, you're going to find that you are kind of muddy in your waters. Like you said, taking a sort of jack-of-all-trades thing. Now, it is possible to be jack-of-all-trades and have a winner strategy with it, but you have to know how to play it. You have to realise, well, this is what I'm doing because it will allow me to get my two extra workers out by being a jack-of-all-trades and trigger these two bonuses early, which I'll then 
cause a cascade effect to become effective. So it's it's possible to do that, but you have to kind of know where you're going for it with it. All, all of that, you still haven't really convinced me that there is interaction in this game. Yeah, there's tough choices to be made, and the odd time that people will put uh, their meeples and make you pay more or block a space off. But other than that, you're doing your own thing on your own board and you've got your own engineers eventually. I think I think it is a very solitary game and that's that's one of the things I don't like about it. All right, let's say, for example, how many move brown track spaces are there on the board? There's two. <laughs> you think I'm not looking at who wants to move their brown track when I'm making a decision whether to take those spaces or not. Okay, well, there's obviously different levels of interaction. That's a but very it's a sort of... Game. I mean, you know, it's yeah. not... That, that is the interaction work. Almost all worker placement games is denying other people resources, blocking them, manipulating turn order. You know, that's... I don't know how interactive worker placement games can get beyond that. I just didn't feel... I felt like I was in my... That everyone was in their own little sort of bubble in this game and everyone was doing their own little thing and yeah you've got to understand what people are doing and why they're doing it and maybe try and try and stop them doing things i think we're going to have to agree to disagree a larger degree for me is i felt like i was that everybody was was doing their own little thing no one was really talking about what they were doing or what why they were doing it or there was no chat across the table everyone just kind of got on oh it's definitely one of those ones that you get russian railroad brow crease from it's one of those guys, like the agricola brow crease and the uh, I don't know what else yeah it's one of those ones where you're sitting there just frowning just looking at and anyone we always say that anyone came in and didn't know anything about board games or our culture or whatever looked at you they were like why are those four people just staring at the table <laughs> just I haven't talked for 10 minutes because I'm busy thinking but I like that I like that deep uh, burn, itchy. I, I took the space I needed. What am I going to do now? That's screwed my whole two-round strategy I had worked out. So, just moving on to a more positive note from me. I like the variety in this game. I like the fact that different engineers come out. I like the fact that you have all these different choices to make. I like the fact that you can have different end of game scoring because I think two of the end game scoring cards are withheld. So there's a lot of there's a lot of variety, and that's going to lead to different games of this. And as Ronan said, he's had so many different games of this already. So I, I do like the variety. Yeah, yeah. I think replayability probably was my major concern after my first game of it i looked at it and i went i like that i like the look of it the rule book is really good by the way really great rule book uh i like the, the brain burnness of it i like it's the the weight of it for time is perfect but is it going to be replayable and then my second game all right not in probably slightly subtle ways but actually not not so subtle was different and my third play was different and my fourth, and I actually don't you know what I haven't played the same game and it's not yes there are different engineers come out slightly different end game scoring cards but a lot of the variety has come from the player choices I think we talked about it in the last uh we talk about a lot actually the fact that player choices should drive a game and it shouldn't be the game driving what's happening to you and that's where I think the variety comes from because you, I have mean, to go over the same point. You have to react to what other people are doing. You have to see where the opportunities are. And things like, you know, oh, I said I was going to talk about like, the timing of taking locomotives. That's all driven by players. It's all driven by when am I going to be able to get in that? When, where am I in turn order? When am I going to be able to take those? Because if I ended up with a, with a two, three, four locomotive, 
I've take I've spent three of my actions getting locomotives, and they're, they're rubbish. But if I wait too long, I'm not going to be getting the things that I need, you know. And but again, it's all driven by what the other players are doing. So that's where I think the the replayability for me is coming from is that although it looks like it, because you can only score points in two ways and people saying therefore there's only two ways of playing the game you can only play to get most tracks out or you can only play industry track just because you can only score points in those two ways doesn't mean you're limited to two strategies there are different ways of doing the same thing how do you feel that the different player counts actually change this game does the larger player counts make it a better game a more involved game or does the the quicker time of a two-player game make it better well i'm actually quite surprised at how the different player counts affect the game i think four players definitely the strength and where it shines because there's much more of a fight for spaces and everything feels a lot tighter. Three players are okay, but it's less of a browser or it's less of a brain burn. You do, everyone gets one extra worker, but it does feel slightly like things have relaxed a little bit and you can get things going slightly easier. The two player is a remarkable change in the game. That's where there really is not much interaction and you can set yourself on a certain path and be kind of assured that you're not going to get messed with too much but it is really quick now i've played it two player only with puria who's a really quick player who, you know friend of the podcast and all that um but we're getting it done in 45 minutes for a thinky euro two-player game that is really quick is it as good as four player not even close is it the best two-player game out there not really but as a kind of something to do for 45 minutes as a, uh, with a few decisions and to see how certain strategies play out, I think it's well worth giving it a swing, although it's not my favourite. Four players definitely where I like it most. We have been talking about Russian Railroads for about three days. Should we sum up, Sean? Yes, I think we probably should, Ronan. Probably going to upset Ronan slightly here. Russian Railroads is a perfectly good game. It, it all works. It all ties together nicely. Uh, it looks great. But there's still something holding me back from thinking that this is a really great game. I think it, it all does sort of boil down to, I don't think this game is a lot of fun. When, when I'm playing a hard, thinky game, I want some interaction. I want some table chat. And I do feel like I'm in my own little bubble, doing my own little thing. And you kind of, you know what you want to do in your next turn. And you might have a couple of things that you, you will go for if you can't do your main target. And... Then on top, then then you start to get that frustration of because it is a thinky game. People do take a long time sometimes, and I, I just don't have a massive amount of fun playing this game. It's a very interesting game. I won't turn a game of it down, but it's not the ga- great game that I was hoping for. I think that if you are off the opinion that sitting down, squinting at some bits of cardboard and wood for a couple of hours while making tough decisions over to what to exclude and what to prioritise is fun. This is a fun game. It's fun in the way that Agricola is fun. It's fun in the way that Yido is fun. The game doesn't want you to do well and you have to fight against it in order to make it work. On my first couple of plays, I did have some reservations. I wasn't sure it was going to keep 
providing the level of fun it had. I felt like I was kind of missing out on some of the interactions between the different plays. I still feel like I am, and, and that's kind of a good point to come on to, is that I've played it a few times now, and I'm still thinking, oh, at the end of every game, there's bits where I'm saying, I should have done that. I chose the wrong bonus tile at the wrong time. I should have... Ch- I mean, I tried to ignore bonus tiles last time I played, and it didn't go very well for me. I've tried to chase getting the workers as quickly as possible. It's different things to do. They might seem small, but they all count. It's all an interesting puzzle that you're trying to solve each time you play. I really like it. I really think it's a good, deep, thinky Euro. It probably harkens back away from these sort of hybrids of trying to bring different bits in from all different types of games and have 800 different mechanisms and give you 42 stages to go along before you can score a point like a lot of new games are going from it strips it down it makes it simple it's just place your workers and there's your options that you can do with your workers i really like it fantastic game looking forward to lots more games of it although apparently possibly not with sean those are our thoughts on russian railroads so now we move on to a brand new game on the market it came out in the kickstarter campaign and it's just about to be released in april 2014 for retail purchase that's the agents published well self-published by the designer Sar Shai and it's his first project. It plays two to five players in a playing time of about 30 minutes and it's a card game with hand management and strategic placing of those cards. We are using the updated rule set. So how do you play the agents? Well the base game contains three decks of cards and they are the agents deck which is the mainstay of the game the missions deck, which is involves bonus scoring, and the IPs deck, which are basically the game's victory points. Each player will start with three agent cards, one mission, and varying IPs depending on where you are in the turn order. There are other cards, and these are the safe houses, and they begin each faction. The safe houses have two white arrow halves and two black arrow halves, and each player will have one card with the black arrow halves pointing at them, and one with the white ones pointing their way. The half arrows represent data tokens and are the main way to score in the game. So this leads us to the agent cards, and there are two different types of these available. The first type are the faction agents, and these have one end of the card with the aforementioned data tokens in black or white, while the opposite end has an action printed on it. The person playing one of these cards must decide where to place the card and which way round it should go. Placing it with the data tokens facing you and adjacent to the other half of the data token, be it black or white, will give you points as follows. If both halves of the arrows are exactly the same shade, it will give two points. But if they differ, it's only harvest the one point. Doing this means that the player who the action is now facing, can use this action immediately for free and on subsequent turns at the cost of an action on their turn, but only while it still faces them. So you really must decide if you want the points or the action, what's more important to you. What are the actions? Well, 
the actions vary, but some of them can rotate cards, some of them can kill agents, which means the card flips and it basically doesn't provide any actions or scoring, and it can really clog up the faction. You can move agents within a faction or from one to another, etc. The other cards I mentioned were are free agents, and these do not have the data tokens, but instead have a one side with straight up one-off points, and the other side has a one-off action for the player that is facing. On each turn, a player has two actions and may use any combination of the following, including the same action twice. Playing an agent. As stated before, place a faction agent in a faction or place a free agent between you and another player. Of course, deciding on what way round you're going to play that card. Reactivate a command. As long as the command is directed at you, the action printed on the card can be performed by spending an action. Buying agents and missions. By spending your IPs, you may buy up to two new agents at the cost of one IP each and or up to two missions at the cost of two IPs each. And lastly, you can trade in your missions and agents. You can discard any amount of agents and missions from your hand and draw the same number from the respective decks. After the actions, players may assign missions from their hand to their factions with the limit being two per faction at any time. A player may also remove the missions from the factions and put them back in their hand. So what are the missions I hear you say? Missions are bonus points for meeting certain conditions in a faction. They could be a, as simple as the attached faction has more agents than the others, or it could be give extra points for an adjacent dead agent cards or an additional points for, for mixed shades completed data tokens. There are loads of these to explore. After each turn, players will add up the scores from all completed data tokens aimed at them, any mission points and any free agent points scored, and they will take the IP cards of the same value. When one player reaches 50 IPs, the game ends with that player the victor. Ronan, the agents. Okay, Sean, let's start from the beginning. The presentation of the game itself, the artwork, the components, how it looks, how it feels. I think the artwork is good and distinctive everything's quite clear on the cards the design itself works it could be a bit cluttered with those symbols whether they're you've got the black symbols or the white symbols but there are black or white versions of each card so it's very clear if the card's got a black background it's gonna have a black symbol on it it's got a white background and it's gonna have a white symbol on it when it's laid out it's pretty easy to, to just look at a faction and see what's going on and yeah you have to read each action on each agent but the actual keyword of each action on the agent is in capitals and bolded so it kind of stands out i think it's a good design and feel to the game well i'm a big comic book fan as we've discussed plenty of times on this show and i really really like the design of the cards and well the design of the cards but also the artwork on the cards it just reminds me of those really gritty batman comics from the 90s it's got a real comic book feel to it and it's got a real sort of underworld gritty dirty everything's a little bit sort of in silhouette I, th I really like the artwork i'm a big big fan of the artwork and as you said the cards do what they're supposed to do you know exactly what what's happening you don't have to study too hard to work out what, what the scoring and what actions you've got so i think definitely the the production values are, are a plus for me uh i guess the next thing that's going to strike you when you get in your game is the rule book what's your thoughts on the rule book well, we're playing with the updated rule set, which is bringing brought another, a few more rules into it, which is just coming out with, I believe, the retail release. And yeah, it, it was okay, but I think 
for for a simple game, we kind of re- kept reviewing it a little bit too much to the point where I think we actually started playing the game incorrectly because we didn't actually pick up a rule, which was that when you play a card, the other player gets to play the action immediately for free. We didn't pick up on that because it wasn't very clear. So I think there are improvements there. It's it's okay, but I think it doesn't deliver a hundred percent. I think it's one of those rule books that aims to give you the theme while teaching you the game and in doing so possibly muddies the water a little bit there's not a clear structure to things there's no like go to this page it tells you how everything goes some rules go across pages so it starts a section and it carries on across two or three pages where give me something in one page and concise and tell me there you go that's what you need to that's the structure of a round this is what you do the summaries of the actions agents can do are not great and not clear in a lot of areas. So it, it, we we came across numerous questions of, well, can it do that? Or well, is that the effect it has? And we pretty much had the house rule, use a bit of common sense. Nothing major. I'm not saying anything broken or whatever. I think it's, it's okay as a rule book, but it, if this is the second attempt, maybe there's a third and a fourth and improvement can be made. How do you think it compared to the first issue rulebook, Sean? Well, I think the second one actually introduced a lot more rules. I think the first one was was probably a little bit better in terms of describing the game and how you play it. But I don't think they've really uh, translated the new rules as possibly as well as, as could have happened. But as Ronan said, it's not it's not a terrible rulebook, but it, it does suffer from a Ronan absolutely nailed it on the head it tries to sort of bring you into this agent's world and tries to tell a story as well as tell you the rules and that's that's a dicey game to play because sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and it doesn't quite work on this one yet but i think with a bit, a bit of cleaning up it can definitely work for this getting on to probably you know, obviously the most important thing for any game the actual gameplay itself i will say there are genuinely interesting decisions to make the main decision is to obviously with you're going to attempt to build points yourself or take points with those free agents and get the symbols facing you and your two factions and start trying to build up an engine of points which you're going to have to do because the game is a race and if anyone gets too far ahead it's a real struggle to get them back but obviously you're giving away the actions and i'll go into it a bit deeper but first off as soon as you you've played a couple of rounds you start realizing Every decision I make on which way to orient a card is going to have some impact. And genuinely, there's a decision to make with each card you play. Yeah, absolutely. Our initial games, we, we, we initially played this only two-player. And our initial two-player games, one player ended up just almost going for the points religiously. And the other player just got all the actions. So I felt like in the two-player of a game, I felt like one player was having all the fun with all the actions... And one player was just really, really strategizing on how to get eke out those points. And the player that went for the points won pretty much every time, didn't they, Ronan? But on a multiplayer game, it, I think it opens up a new world. There's there's actions coming from all angles. And you really, really, as Ronan said, do have to think about every orientation of every card you place. The flip side of that for me, though, is generally you're going to have quite a small hand of cards. It's probably, if you can use a small number of cards and, and get a strategy going and get yourself ticking over, that's the way to go. So if you have to keep mining the deck and randomly drawing to see if you can get anything useful, it's probably not the most efficient way. But with that small hand of cards, 
be missions and agents, it's not easy to build a real strategy. It's it, you're just playing what you're drawing and then saying, oh, what can I do here? The also, of course, any strategy you're trying to do, it's a highly, highly interactive game. And your neighbours, what they do to the factions that you can affect, massively impacts, obviously, on any strategy you're trying to build up. So it's a shifting scenario all the time. And you don't generally have a big hand of cards. So therefore, it makes it really very much a tactical game. Now, I know it's supposed to be a quick game. I don't think it's quite as quick as... You know, I've heard people call it a filler and stuff like that. Well, God, I don't know. Because some of the decisions were way too hard for me to be making them as quickly as I would in your, your normal filler. The other side of that is, if you do somehow get a big hand of cards, if you get given actions for extra cards, you decide to buy some, or you're looking for something, the game then slows down. Because... You've got so many cards with different implications that suddenly you're like, oh, geez, which one of these am I going to play? So having a bigger hand would slow the game down, but having a small hand reduces the strategy. I think, just to go back onto your filler point, I think two players, because it's very zero-sum, I think it is a filler. It's, it's a filler with decisions and with a bit of head-scratching involved. But I think once you involve those more players, then it becomes slightly more than a filler, and it does become very thinky. I think three players optimum for this, actually, because... I think four players might be a little bit too much, but three players, everybody is interacting with everyone. You've got you've got attacks coming from both sides for every one of the same people, and it makes it really interesting. And the banter around the table is very good. But yeah, it is definitely a head scratcher. But I think there's a definite element of luck. If you get off to a bad start and you don't get the cards that you need to react to what your opponent's doing, it can be a bit difficult to claw your way back. I absolutely agree with you. The element of luck is there. I think that in this sort of game that's trying to be thematic, I'm not so bothered about it. I think also because it's so interactive and the nature that every card played it somehow benefits me. Yeah, unless it's someone on the other side of the table. And as you said, three player is the way to go with it. It's it's you know, two player works. We have fun two player. Three player has got to be the sweet spot. With more than that, People are doing actions the other side of the table and they're doing stuff to factions. And they, it's not their fault. You can sit there and even just drawing two agents, it takes a little while to work out what the impact is. And you're doing nothing. And probably 37 different options are going through your head and you don't really want them to be because you just want the game to get moving. So I agree with you. Yes, there is random in it. But in this sort of a game, you, you know, it's I, I don't mind it at all, to be honest with you. I think more than the random, my kind of biggest personal issue with the game is that not only is playing negatively possible, but sometimes it's completely necessary. It is necessary to break down someone if they've got a good set up a strong base if they're building a lead if they've got lots of those symbols completed facing them you have to just then start playing negatively you have to start using your actions not to give yourself points if my income's two points around and i'm having to spend both my actions in order to take you down sean then my income's still gonna be two points around and maybe i'll get you down to three points but you'll still be eking away and eking ahead but if i don't break you down you're going to be on seven points, which is even worse. So I kind of face with, well, I can't catch up from my two to your seven, but I can only get you down to three. So I have to play negatively in some hope that something is going to break for me. When you have the other players interacting, you can work between you to bring down someone who's got a lead. But again, then more than half the players are playing negatively just to break it down. And 
there is a slight sort of downward spiral sometimes of the game where you're trying to stop that person racing to 40 points. So you put a break on the whole thing and then everyone starts stopping everyone else and it is all starting to grind a little bit. I think we come back to the point where with two players, I do feel because it's so zero sum and it, it does take longer to drag that person back. I think it does happen in three players, definitely. And two players may well have to play negatively to bring someone back into the fold. But I think that works better because it's very, it's, it just works quicker. In, within one turn each, you've probably brought them back to a point where you, you can now start to build up your own tableau of agents. But one thing I, I would say to you, Ronan, is... You, you touched upon them trying to be really thematic with it. Do you feel that that theme shines through? Do you feel like you are playing agents or do you think it's a little bit abstract? Well, I don't think it's completely abstract. It's not like it would work with any theme because of the, of the nature of the actions, the sort of extract and the kidnap and the move and assassinate. Some of the actions do feel thematic. Some of the others, maybe not so much. Do I really feel like this sort of spy agency is broken down and we're building it back up again in these safe houses? Not really. It's not strongly thematic, but I wouldn't go so far as to call it an abstract either. There is, maybe because of that rule book, I don't know, maybe there is a slight feel that you're in this gritty, dirty world, you're pulling nasty tricks on each other. Some of the roles definitely seem thematic. I think the free agent roles, not particularly. I think they're, they're one that's that just they're kind of weird throwaway cards. So, to a degree, to a degree, in as much as I guess you're going to get in a game short length. Yeah, I felt that the the game itself wasn't that thematic, but I felt the agent, the faction agent cards themselves were actually all very thematic. Like the gunner will take out someone from another faction and the infiltrator can infiltrate into a faction and split it up and... The paramedic card can revive an agent. So the agents actually play very thematically. And that's what I felt about the game is that's where the theme came from, really, for me. Everything that surrounds that and the free agents, as Ronan said, not so much. So there is definitely a bit of theme in there for me. Definitely, yeah. The, the individual action's kind of thematic. The overall structure of it, mm. you know, I'm not, I'm not really feeling the story. But, but you know, it, it works fine. Sean, have you got any... Final thoughts for us on the agents? Well, the agents is a game that kind of brings me out of my comfort zone. I like games where I sit in a bubble. No one interferes with me. I do my own thing. I build an engine and I, by the end of the game, it reaps its rewards. And agents, the agents is very much a game where everybody is in your face and everyone's trying to upset you and everyone's trying to do things. But it's short enough, funny enough and charismatic enough to get away with it for me so i actually quite enjoy this game i think it's absolutely as we said the sweet spot lives in with three players but it's enjoyable with two maybe not so much with four but yeah a decent game for me yeah it's definitely not a game that's for all it's first and foremost a very mean game especially two player but but any player count is mean you are gonna be doing horrible things to each other it can be frustrating because if you're not drawing the cards that you want or if the other players are doing things to you constantly and tearing you down, it can feel tough. It can feel tough when you've got the points engine building and people are trying to tear it down. And it can feel tough when you're not able to get the points building engine. If you sort of get behind, sometimes it can be really hard to get it back into place again. So there is an element of frustration to it. Now, that's part of the game. 
but it's not an element that everyone's going to enjoy. And this isn't a game I'd really want to play all the time. If I was a bit tired or a bit narky or Sean and I were having one of our moments, then <laughs> perhaps this would be one to avoid. It's probably not as polished as it could be. There are a few situations in the game where you feel like, you know, I shouldn't really be in this situation. It's possible to create loops, which are not that difficult to create loops, which the players then have to make the decision to break out of. There's perhaps cards that interact in slightly funky ways. It's tactical, but the tactical decisions are good and they're hard decisions. And you do genuinely feel like you're making a difficult decision a lot of the time, which is a big bonus in it. It's an unusual theme. It's an unusual style of play. It's not just a copy of other games. I think that if you're not going to be put off by a feeling of a little bit of frustration and that people are picking on you every now and then... Give it a try because it's something that is worth sort of seeking out and seeing if it marries into your taste in games. So that's The Agents, which is released in April 2014. So the final game we're going to cover in this episode is the Pathfinder Adventure Card Game Rise of the Rune Lords. This is a game for one to four players in its base set, although I think most people who have it have bought the character add-on deck, so it goes up to six. It is listed as taking 90 minutes. It's around 90 minutes of scenario, and its genre is, surprisingly enough, I would say, adventure card game. The designer is Mike Selinker. He is well known for designing games like Betrayal at House on the Hill, Axes and Allies, which is an old classic, and one of my favourite games of all time, Lords of Vegas. It's published by Paizo Publishing. Now, they are mostly an RPG company. Might not surprise you that they publish a lot of the Pathfinder products for that RPG system. And they've also brought out some of the Dr. Lucky games in the board gaming realm. But this, I would say, is their first major, major release and breaking into what we would consider to be tabletop games for us as opposed to RPGs. It is most firmly set in the Pathfinder fantasy RPG universe. Pathfinder, I now I'm no expert, but I believe it was kind of a take on AD&D and it developed that into a slightly different system. I'm sure someone's going to correct me somewhere on that. But it is based on that kind of Tolkien-esque sword and sorcery, monsters, adventures that you'll be familiar with from lots of fantasy tropes. This game is all about each player taking the role of an adventurer and forming up into a party of adventurers. You're going to start off by choosing someone basic. So there's warriors, there's clerics, there's sorcerers, there's wizards, there's thieves, there's rangers, paladins, a monk. You choose one of those and each of those characters is going to give you some powers. It's going to give you some stats and it's going to give you a deck list. So what do those all mean? Well, the game completely revolves around drawing cards and then rolling dice to see what happens with regards to that card. Each character has a set of skills. Those are strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom and charisma. They will sound familiar if you've ever played D&D. And each character has got a particular type of polyhedral dice which corresponds to each of those characteristics. So as opposed to other games where, for example, your strength might be a set number, 
in this case, if you are a sorcerer and not particularly strong, you'd have a D4 as your strength stat. Whereas if you're a big, rough, tough fighter, you might have a D10 as your strength stat. So stats tell you what dice you roll in particular situations in the game. Powers are individual to each character. And they control such things as your hand size, so how many cards you're going to have available to you each turn, different sorts of things you're proficient with in terms of armors and weapons, so how those cards you use them, and also some particular powers which I will come back to. And the last thing is they tell you what's in your deck list. Now, each character is portrayed by a deck of cards, and in that deck there's going to be a particular ratio of weapons, spells, armor, items allies and blessings depend upon what class your character is and that deck can develop throughout the course of the game but we'll talk about that as well a bit later so after everyone has chosen their character and then formed their deck for that character now there are suggested starting decks in there however if you're feeling a bit wild and fanciful you can build yourself a set of decks as long as you correspond to those set ratios and you only use basic cards from the sets then you're going to choose where you're going to go adventuring now this particular set comes with one adventure path now that adventure path is an overarching story which goes over this base set the character add-on deck i mentioned earlier and then six add-on packs they're not all out yet we've only got up to number four so there's two more on the way and overall they're all going to add more content to the game more adventures more places to visit more loot more baddies all the rest of the things you'd expect in an adventure card game so each one has got an adventure and an adventure details a set number of scenarios and those scenarios tell you exactly where you're going to go and what you're going to do in one game so one game of this one sit down for those roughly 90 minutes is the party taking on a scenario. So what does the scenario tell you? Well, it gives you a little background to the story. Then it gives you a set of locations. Now the locations is based on the number of players and it's basically the number of players plus two. So if I've got two players, I'm gonna draw four locations and it tells you which ones to pull out of the locations deck. And on each of those locations, it's gonna tell you what the background to that location is, any special rules that apply to that location and also a deck list for that location which again I'll come back to. So you've got the special rules, you've got the locations, you know where you're going. The scenario will then tell you what is the meat and bones of this particular scenario you're going to do. The most important thing it's going to tell you is the villains and henchmen which are going to be at the locations in the scenario and each location is going to have either a villain or a henchman at it. And the goal of almost all scenarios, there are some slightly different ones, but almost all scenarios are to track down the villain and defeat it and when i go through how to play the game we'll come back to that but just know that each location is probably going to have a villain and a henchman at the other types of cards which the location cards tell you to put into their particular deck are monster cards which you're going to come across and barriers now those are the two types of banes you can come across which obviously from the name are bad things which can do you damage or cause terrible things to happen However, barriers can also be boons, which are what every other type of card is, because those six types of cards I said you can get in your deck list, where you can encounter new types of them and improve your deck and get new loot. And just go over them again quickly. They're weapons, spells, armor, items, allies, and blessings. So each location will tell you how many monsters, how many barriers, how many weapon spells, armors, items, allies, and blessings to put into the deck of nine cards, which goes along with Vinland Henchman. And then you shuffle those up, and that is a set location. The last thing to do before you start playing is to build a blessing deck. Now blessings do go to characters and they can use them, but for some reason you use them as the time to the game. And for every scenario so far that I've encountered, you put 30 
blessings in a deck and on each player's turn you're going to turn over one of those blessings so that's the timer between you as a party you've got 30 turns to find this villain probably track them down and win the scenario so how do you do a turn so you start off by choosing where you want to be on your turn you move to a location and you've just got a card that represents your character and you say i'm going here or i'm going there there's no traveling there's no geographical necessity and there's not a lot of geographical logic in the game whatsoever when you're there you have the option to explore and explore is as simple as turn over the top card look at it and do what it says and what it says depends upon whether it's a boon or a bane now i'm going to come back to henchmen and villains in a second but generally with boons, so perhaps I found a sword that I can pick up, or a good bit of armour, or an ally that would like to join me, they have a check on them, and the check is going to be linked to a particular stat, so perhaps it's an ally, and perhaps they're looking for someone with lots of charisma. I would look at the strength of the check there, so it might say charisma 6. I would then look at my particular character, see what dice they roll for a charisma check, roll it, if I get the level of the checker above, I've passed it. In terms of boons, that means I acquire them and they come into my hand. In terms of banes, it's very similar. However, obviously, what you're trying to do is get the level of the check for that particular bane or something bad's going to happen. Now, the easiest one to deal with are monsters. It's usually a combat check of some kind. So they'll tell you how tough they are. Let's say it's a combat check level 8. You will then check what combat you can use. Now, everyone can use their strength dice. You can attempt to punch the character in the face. However, other characters have got abilities that let them use different things. And also, kit will let you change. Your equipment will let you change how you go through combat. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But just know that fighting Banes is the same thing. You've got a check level. And you're going to roll dice and attempt to get that level. In terms of barriers, they are boons or Banes. And lots of different things can happen with them. It's not really worth me going through it. But they might be traps you have to avoid. Or chests you can open to get good stuff. Or runes you have to try and understand. Otherwise, they're going to blow up on your face. Different types of things. It might sound a bit basic in terms of how you perform those checks but there are things which you can do to affect how well you're likely to do at this check now firstly other characters can help you. each character is going to have some blessings in their deck and generally if your character's got a blessing in their hand they've got ability on any check to play it to help out and some blessings are going to help out checks in certain ways more efficiently but in general, they're going to allow you to roll more dice for your check to give you a better chance. That's one of the decisions as a group you're going to make is, shall we help each other out with the blessings on our hands? Shall we save them for harder attempts? Or blessings also let you generally do an extra exploration, which can be important when there's only 30 turns. Maybe you're going to have to save that blessing. So there's a little decision as a group you're going to have to make. The other things you can do is you can use your equipment you have so for example weapons might add to your melee attack which you can use using your strength dice or let's say you're not a particularly strong character but you're quite nimble you get weapons that let you use your dexterity dice and attack or if you're a sorcerer you can use spells or clerics can use spells to help them with their attack with the weapon whatever you so depending on what character you are how you approach combat and different checks is going to be different but your equipment is going to help you obviously weapons help you in fights allies do all kinds of different things and so on and so forth if there are multiple checks on the card the character who's explored doesn't have to do them all because if anyone else at the location, they can help out. As long as the character at that location does one of the checks, other characters can help out. So say I'm there with my big bulky fighter and there's a combat and a dexterity check. 
or maybe you've got a thief with me who can help me out of the trap while I'm busy fighting the combat. In terms of playing cards yourself to help out, the cards have different ways of playing. You might just have to show you've got one in your hand. You might have to discard it out of your hand, which will be important because I'm going to talk about health in a second. You might have to recharge a card, which means put it at the bottom of your deck, possibly even banish it from the game completely. Each card will tell you how to use it and what to do with it when you use it. So these checks, you're either going to pass them or you're going to fail them. Like I said, if you fail the boon check, it just goes out of the game. If you pass a boon check, you get it into your hand. With banes, if you pass a bane check, generally that bane is just going to go out of the game. So if I defeat a monster, the monster's gone. I don't get any particular reward for doing it, but I also don't get punished. If I fail a bane check, and I'm going to use a monster as an example because it's probably the easiest one, I then could well occur some damage. Let's go, for example, in combat. If I had to get nine on my check and I only got a six through combinations of dice rolls and any other help or equipment I use, I'm three short. Now, what that means is I take three damage. Whenever you take damage in the game, you must discard cards from your hands. As well as being useful to use, they also count as your health in the game. Now, each character starts with 15 cards in their deck. And when you take damage, you're going to have to draw up to your hand size at the end of the round, be it four, five, or six cards. If at any point you cannot draw up to your complete hand size, I'm dead. That's basically what happens for all banes when you're taking damage. Something bad's going to happen to you. Some of them might cause you to banish card or whatever, but you get the idea. In terms of dying, according to the game, when you die you die, you're gone, your character's out of there, you lose all the stuff that you've built up over the course of any adventure that character's been in and it can't play anymore. I'd love to hear from people who genuinely stick to that rule. The other couple of types of encounters to go through real quick are the fact that we've got these henchmen and villains floating around, which are the whole point of the game. When you encounter a henchman, you conduct your combat check usually as usual, although the henchman possibly could be a trap and things like that. And if you pass, not only do you discard that henchman out of the game, you also get a chance to close your location. Now, each location has got a different requirement which you need to fulfill in order to close it. Now, the reason you want to do that is because if you're able to close it when you defeat the henchman, you don't have to go through the whole deck of cards, and that timer is constantly ticking, and closing locations is vital. And why is it vital? Because when you encounter the villain, you have to fight the villain. If you defeat the villain and there are any open locations, the villain will flee to one of those open locations and you're going to have to find it again. The good news is defeating the villain automatically closes the location they were at, but it now goes into another deck of cards and you have to carry on searching, always against the timer. To help you out, before you fight a villain, any characters that are at locations may temporarily close them by filling the closing requirement and therefore the villain cannot flee there on that turn. If you ever defeat the villain, and there are no locations open for it to flee to, you win the scenario. If you all die, or the timer runs out, before you've completed that, you will not pass the scenario, you do not get the bonus for passing the scenario, and you have to play it again in order to validly move on to the next scenario, next adventure, and carry on building up your party. Now, there's other things like the characters have got special powers, uh, the fighter can help anyone fighting at the location. The cleric can heal, as you might expect. The ranger can have a look at the deck and see what's coming up. Things like that, which help give some theme to it. At the end of each scenario, you reset your decks back to the limits that are set. So initially back to that 15-card limit. However, 
you can keep any of the boons that you've acquired or you've got as a reward. So if I find a plus one longsword, I can keep it and get rid of all the more basic weapons I have in my deck, if it suits. And also, there is a way of swapping cards during the game, but after a scenario, you can swap cards between your characters in your party as you wish and help each other out and possibly pass on things that will help each other. You carry on performing scenarios and work through the chapter packs and work all the way through and become a band of legends when you follow the adventure card game to its completion which should be sometime this summer sean another long-winded rules explanation from me i'm getting bored of my own voice talk to me what what oh you're done john wake oh, up sean <laughs> i was reading my notes multiple times during running a short little overview there and i've just got a note page full of negative things and i really don't think negatively about this game i think it's a good game but i'm going to start with as I usually do, with the looks of the game and how it's put together. I'm not the biggest fan of the artwork in this. I think I'll explain a bit further. I'll go a bit deeper than that. I'm not a, the biggest fan of the design of the cards. I think the, the artwork's okay. It's a little bit manga, anime kind of feel to it for me. And But it's a little bit beige. But the, the cards themselves, they look unfinished and blocky. There's big white backgrounds everything's really as i said blocky if you compare this with say let's say game of thrones or the lord of the rings the card game they look so much more lavish and pretty and finished these don't this is not something i had ever noticed until you pointed out to me the other day <laughs> i think that the individual bits of artwork for the majority are fine there are some ropey ones okay the snake card's pretty boring it's just a picture of a snake but some of them the individual artwork is pretty cool it doesn't look as good as fantasy flight products i'm not sure that's a fair comparison to hold any game to now fair enough but even games like dominion or the shadow rift which we talked through or race for the galaxy i just think they look finished the cards look finished this looks like there should be something else maybe a background or a, a bit of artwork around the edges it's, it's a minor minor quibble the cards do exactly what they need to but it just they just look a bit unfinished and it kind of niggles at the back of my mind I think some of the cards are full scenes. They've got background and it looks like a picture of something actually happening. Whereas quite a few of the cards, it's it, it looks like something's just been sort of cut and pasted on to a, a blank background. I think that's kind of the issue you're having with it. Yeah, okay. I can accept possibly could look a bit nicer. Moving on. Another one of my little things is I like to immerse myself in the game. I like to feel I'm doing what the game is telling me I'm doing. So in this game, I would have liked to have seen something else. And I know this is probably impossible given the amazing amount of cards that come with the game. There's probably no way you could fit anything else in. But either a larger card for the locations or a little tile for the locations. Instead of these little cards that you have to really strain to see what's what's going to be in them. And the, the writing on the bottom. And you're constantly looking over now what is in that one. or what's. So I just don't feel like I'm exploring a wood, a castle, a bridge. Although some of them actually do feel quite thematic in terms of the, there's like the shop cards in the apothecary where once they're closed you can actually go and buy things well find things of that that ilk in them but i don't i i struggle a little bit with the immersion into the world i definitely think that some of the locations are quite clever in the tiny little twists they put on, on how they work and, and how things occur in there i again another point i had noticed until you pointed it out yeah 
But the game is really an abstract of an adventure. There are a lot of logical leaps you have to make in order for it to work. And so I think if you emphasize or try to emphasize some of the kind of reality, if you like, of it, of I'm really in a cathedral, or I'm really in a lighthouse. The fact that I'm in this lighthouse and Sean's in the woods a few miles away, but if he's having a ruck, I can fire a blessing over to help him out or shoot my longbow somehow five miles and hit that goblin in the shoulder. Would it start to break down a bit more? Would it... There has to be a suspension of disbelief here, and sometimes it edges very close to the point where I'm I'm willing to give this game a lot of leeway, but you're pushing it a bit far now. Would that just break it too much? Because you're not going to a location as a party, and you're not going through a scenario. That's not the way they've designed it. They've designed it very abstractly to, to work in a different way and be all about the card combinations. So it, that's possibly a different type of game. Right, my last gripe, I promise. And uh, but by the way, these are really minor, minor quibbles. They don't sound minor. <laughs> no, they are. The cards, the cards aren't all that bad. And I have a little problem with immersion, but you still feel like you're working in a team. You still feel like you're battling monsters. And when the monsters come out, you do feel like, oh my god, not a werewolf, please, not a werewolf. So th- there is that immersion, definitely. My last issue, slight issue, and it's more of a question, Ronan. Do you think the choices are a little bit? obvious and irrelevant sometimes like which location does it really matter if you have to explore them all anyway and also the scenario mechanics seem to work over and over the same way you're always chasing a villain do you think they could have brought in a little bit of variety to the mechanics of each scenario well we have only got up to adventure pack two so i i can't talk for anything that's gone beyond there and there is a couple of events that are slightly different. There's one where you just wander around trying to collect stuff in the town because they all love you or something like that. So in terms of variety of gameplay, perhaps that is yet to come. In terms of the choices you make, I think a lot of the choice is based around how much does the individual want to give to the party. And without that timer mechanism, I think the choices really would be irrelevant. But because that time is there, it then does become a little bit more, there's a little bit more of a decision to make. There's a little bit, well, okay, you might make that role. If you don't make that role, how bad will it be? If you do make it, how good will it be? And shall I spend this blessing that I might need to explore? And the difficulty of those decisions ranges a lot in terms of how many players you've got playing and how many characters you have in the party because if you have lots of characters if you've got six characters attempting to explore and you've only got 30 turns obviously everyone's only got five turns each you have to fire out cards as quickly as you can and use them because you might only get five turns in the game however because you've got eight locations to explore so you have to get your explosions done but you have to maximize each turn as well so if i'm using my blessings for you and then it comes to me and I've only got two cards left in my hand and I waste one of my five turns a game, then, wow, what's going on? You're going to be in trouble. With a smaller player count, it then becomes much more about preserving your health because you've got less cards to get through, but you're also less adaptable and you're less good at facing different challenges. So this kind of leads into a a big rabbit hole of different issues. So I'll, I'll kind of narrow it down a little bit in terms of the variety of scenario structure into the teens now in terms of different scenarios gone through and possibly now I need to see something a bit different, mix it up a little bit. And in terms of cho- the choices being obvious, it's such a tactical 
kind of random game that the, the, the good decision might turn out in 30 seconds to be a bad decision. Or firing a load of blessings on a check that you end up losing anyway because you rolled all ones and suddenly, whoa, we wasted a lot of our group resources on that and we didn't get a good result anyway. So it's not the sort of game I can really weigh up. The choice is in. It kind of stuff happens. Okay, so... Okay, well that's that's me done for the really negative stuff. Okay, so now I'm going to be a lot more positive with this game. All of the minor quibbles aside, and as Rona said, I did have a little bit of a worry about the upper sort of echelons of the player count, like six players. Would they get in only five turns per player? Would that actually work? Would that be boring for everyone? But no, it really isn't because everyone is interacting together and everyone can help each other out and you're always keeping an eye on the timer as a team and you're always talking about every decision. So it really, really does work. And that's one of the main, main things I love about this game is it just brings everyone together and you do have to think through and talk through. There's no alpha because it's at the end of the day, it's your decision, but everyone can just say, listen, I can help you with this if you want to try this, or maybe you should try this because later on I might be able to help you with something else. So yeah, that's the, the one one thing that I really love about the game is the interaction. It's it's a co-op that generally feels like a co-op. You have to work together. If each player played by themselves, you just wouldn't win a scenario at all. You have to help each other out, but each individual has to make the decisions about when and where to, to make that help and think, no, actually, I, I need to hold this back, or no, it's fine, you can have it. The party and everything in the party is a group resource. That thing at the end where you all kind of can look at your cards and swap around and give each other different things, that really adds to it as well. And while you're developing an individual character, you're definitely developing that individual character within the party, within your strengths and your weaknesses. And that's very much something I want to come on to because that development of the group is really vital to the game. When you start playing it, one of the things I've got written down is how much random is too much. At the beginning when you play it, it feels really, really random and arbitrary. You turn over a card and you go, well, either I can do that or I can't. And you're kind of like, well, how am I ever, like, this is going to be like this for the whole, every time I play it. If I turn over a trap that's slashing blades with dexterity and it's with my big lumbering fighter, I just can't deal with it. So what what's going on? But I think that as well as experience making you better and getting better gear and equipment within the group makes you better. Also, what you do is you learn to develop the group and take things and take power improvements and take equipment that makes it a more robust group, not just a more robust character. While every character pretty much has got to get better at combat, what I've found is then we kind of go, well, if you're the thief and we come across a tough barrier, we're going to probably send you in there so that you're able to deal with it. But unless you've got a ton of characters, you're not going to be able to deal with every scenario. So, mm, okay, you're the sorcerer, but you're also going to have to be kind of our intelligence person as well because we've got no one here to deal with locations that need intelligence or tests that need intelligence. So it really, the whole development, is, as well as individual to each character, the group develops in certain ways. And in that way, you kind of mitigate a lot of what feels really random when you start playing Yes, there's still random draw, but it's random draw that you learn to deal with and you learn to go, well, let's not panic because between us, we can do this. We just have to come up with a plan between all our characters to deal with that particular issue that we're facing. This is one of the first games for me that's really, really captured that role play element of getting attached to your character. We, we talked about it in the Dungeons and Dragons episode where the 
the game, Dungeons and Dragons games, they, they do certain things very well, but they didn't really capture the role-playing element very well in terms of developing a character, seeing that character grow and progress and learn new skills. And this is the first game that I've come across outside of the role-playing genre that actually does this. And you do become attached to your character. When, when your little cleric's running around and she's on her last sort of five, six cards, you do get very protective and you do demand that people come and help you out because you don't want to encounter that, that werewolf that's lurking in the woods. So you do get out there. You do get people to protect you. You do get anyone who can heal, come, come and help me because I need to protect myself. So that, that again, I love that. And I suppose that takes me back to the immersion I suppose that's another way that I can immerse myself is in, within my character rather than the world. Very much so. The game is almost built to be able to dip in and dip out. So if I've got my however many characters in my box that have been through the same number of scenarios together and then I can play with different groups of players and you, yeah, you be the cleric this time and you be that and you be this. But mechanically, I don't think this is strong enough to draw people back again and again and again without theme and without exactly that attachment to the character i don't think in terms of game length to game complexity in terms of each interaction you have every card flip over is really a basic interaction there's a number you've got to get it by rolling dice and adding modifiers between us let's work out how we're going to do that that's not enough really to draw you back it's the attachment to the character it's the attachment to the group it's the fact that you've been through things together that's what's going to draw you back. That's what's going to make you want to play it again and again. Oh, that magical elven chainmail that we saw last time that we didn't get. Oh, that got to be really handy for my character. Let's, let's go again so I can get it again. I don't see that it works any other way than developing the character, developing the group together, and, and really building on that whole co-op aspect. Unfortunately, I do think that that means that you become really good as a party and perhaps so far it's become a little bit easy. We've had the odd tense moment here and there. The last time we got down within three or four turns of it finishing. But that's as close as we've been for a little while. We have kind of been cruising for a couple of of scenarios now. So uh, anyway, my question to you, Sean, after rambling for a bit there is, why play this and not just play an RPG? I think it's, as you said, it's um, it's an RPG light, really, isn't it? And it's the investment of time that you will have to put into an RPG to get anything out of it. And this is just a lighter version. You can sit down for an hour, play a scenario, and walk away. With an RPG, that's, that's not really possible if you're going to do it properly. So that, that's why you would play this game. It's not probably for people who... Is it also because you don't want every dwarf character to talk in a bad Scottish accent? <laughs> Possibly. Aye, laddie. I like gold. You can't toss a dwarf. <laughs> Jesus, he was Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Bigora. Anyway, so yes, I don't think people who play RPGs regularly will get too much out of this game. Maybe if they just want to experience something a bit lighter that's still in the same sort of realm. But I think this is really for people who just don't have the time to play a full-blown role-playing game. Okay, I am going to give a negative now. And again, I've only got... We've, we have all only got into Chapter Pack 2. But this game was definitely thriving for me on the whole MMO, one more 
offer you a little bit more, offer you a little bit of a reward, offer you some stuff to sort of go through the decks and hope to get into the party to make the party stronger. You know, when you're going through and you miss a great weapon, you kind of go, oh, that's in there. Great. Well, maybe we'll get it next time. When I opened chapter pack two and I added the cards in and I looked at all the loot that was in there and the weapons and spells and all that, I kind of went, oh, I wasn't sure there was much in there that was going to improve my party from where it was at the end of chapter pack one. Or any of my characters. Did did any of us feel like, oh, look, I can get that. That's just as good as what I've already got. I, it needs it needs that. Why am I going through this? Why am I exploring however many decks of 10 cards just to find one villain? That's not enough. Just to count down the one villain is not enough. The, the reward aspect, the achievements of it, the here you go, here's something great, here's something extra, here's something you can get... That has to be in there because kind of almost half the cards you get are, are boons. And if they're no good, and you just can get them and go, great, I've got this and throw it away. You know, if I get my 18th Matuk, I'm not very excited. You've got to give me something to, to want and get. And I don't think they got it right in chapter pack two. I'm trying to be good and not look through the later chapter packs to see what it's like yet. It, they have to improve that aspect. Well, yeah, I don't know if they've sort of realize that it's too easy maybe and by getting better weapons it's just going to make it way too easy for you but there certainly isn't a dramatic increase in the the power of those weapons and armor and sort of boons that you get in the game definitely so as you say hopefully that does increase in the next couple of chapter packs i need shinies so sean do you want to give us your final thoughts on pathfinder adventure card game rise of the rune lords this is a game that really scratches an itch that I've had for a long time in the board gaming world that investment in a character I don't think it's a perfect game by any stretch of the, of the imagination there, there are flaws definitely I do have a slight problem with the immersion into the world and I do have a slight problem with the, the card design and the, the world design itself but it, as I said, it really does do that one thing that no other game has done so far for me. I really want to see how my character progresses. I want to see how what shinies I can get, as Ronan said. I want to see what new creatures are going to come at us from the darks of the underworld. And It's an exploration game like nothing else I've seen yet in, in the board gaming world. So it's definitely a game I don't own yet, but I probably will own soon. The game is all about your connection to the theme of it and to your character which you start to develop if you can connect to the theme if you could connect to the discovery and fighting monsters and having a goblin throw fire at your face and coming across a, a black dragon in a dungeon if that excites you that's all in there if you are interested in developing a character and getting excited when they have one more card in their deck and they have one extra power and they get a plus one to a certain stat that's in there it's got that rpg achievement thing it is all about a sense of discovery and story and seeing what's around the corner and what's the next place we can go to and what's the little twist and mechanic that particular location is going to give us it is about group interaction and a shared experience some of the funny things that have happened in games I don't necessarily have come from something mechanically happening in the game but people's reaction to stuff or pulling out a slashing blade for the third time in a row when you shuffled it back in the deck twice things like that which are funny and everyone can chat about the time when you use four blessings in a check and still failed don't roll a one well i didn't mean to it's the enjoyment as we said off an rpg 
but on a very light scale without the need to become an amateur actor and without the need for the massive commitment and the the game master to be up for 12 hours a night before preparing things it's like rpg for butterflies you just flit in and you flit out and you have a little bit of a nice experience and then you go away again and you don't have to think about it too much i like it i keep wanting to play it don't really understand why i guess it's that mmo player in me of the one more thing one more thing i don't think it's as fantastically amazing world-changing experience as it appears to be kind of a widely held perspective on it because it's really getting high ratings and, and lots of great chat about it but it's keeping me playing it's keeping me buying the expansion so it's definitely doing something right i just want maybe a little bit more from each chapter pack please and those are thoughts on pathfinder the adventure card game So there we have it, another Picking Over the Bones. Thank you very much for listening to our ramblings. We um, hope you enjoyed our thoughts on Jaipur, Russian Railroads, Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, and Agents. Our next episode is going to be another one of our treasure hunts where we're going to look at upcoming games, giving our thoughts. There's also going to be a bonus episode out soon where we look at our treasure hunt from one year ago when the game pit was just starting off. It's one of the things we thought about as a podcast. Often you spew out this content, but you don't go back and review what you've said. We just want to go back, have a quick look, look at the games that we predicted would be treasures or traps and see how true they became, whether they're still around, have we played them, have they disappeared on the face of the earth. Let's go back and find out. We think that might be fun. As always, you can catch us on 2d6.org, along with a whole host of other gaming goodness. And we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network with the very best in gaming podcasts. You can catch us on Twitter at game pit podcast and email us if you'd fancy a chat or have a few questions to ask at the game pit podcast at gmail.com we're also on board game geek come along to our guild and start up a conversation there music by e. aaron <laughs>